0: All right, well, good morning, church, and welcome to Tri-Village. My name is Will Franco, and I'm the pastor here of the church, and if you're new here, we are so glad that you're here. I would love to get a chance to connect with you before you leave. I usually stand over by the steps, and so uh, if you want to connect with me, I would love to connect with you. Now, this morning, uh, if, you are, if you are new here, uh, you have come on a great Sunday uh, because we are addressing a very interesting subject. We are in the middle of a series entitled Marriage, Singleness, and Parenting, and so in this series, we are going to be addressing marriage, singleness, and parenting, hence, hence the title. And uh, this morning, what we're doing is we are going to be looking at marriage through the lens of sex. So we are going to talk about sex, baby. Okay, that's what we are going to be doing this morning, okay? Now, at the end of last, last uh, service, I gave the, the, the disclosure. I said, listen, if you have anyone here who you think might not be ready for this conversation, then this is your chance to have them leave. Now, ladies, don't look at your husbands. Okay, they don't count. I, I mean age, all right? And so if there's someone here who might not be the appropriate age, this is your opportunity now because it's about to get real, okay? So that was your last warning, and uh, don't email me after, okay? So this morning, like I said, we're going to be addressing the relationship between sex and marriage, right? The relationship between sex and marriage. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about the relationship between sex and marriage. One of the questions that some of you might be asking is, why are we talking about this in church? Like, what? why are you bringing up such a controversial subject? Like, you're, we're not supposed to talk about sex in church. That's not, that's not appropriate. You shouldn't go there, right? And you might be thinking, oh, the reason why you're bringing it up is because you want to be the young, hip, controversial pastor who brings up the things that make people giggle. You want to be that guy, right? But actually, it's the furthest thing from the truth. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because I want to pastor my congregation. And because I know you, many of you, And and, and because I know some of you, I really actually know many of you more, even though I don't know all of you, I'm doing this as your pastor. This isn't to be provocative, it's to be, to pastor is the reason why I am addressing this subject. It needs to be addressed. And here's actually two reasons why this needs to be addressed. The first reason why this subject, the subject of sex, needs to be addressed is because what I've seen is that in churches in general, this is a subject that is totally avoided. Churches just don't talk about it. Actually, I grew up in a church where I never heard a message on sex. I never had someone who was mentoring me ask me about my sex life, even though that was an area where I was struggling. No, never, never did I have to worry about them asking me a question because it was like one of those don't ask, don't tell type situations. You, you figure it out because we don't talk about sex in church, right? And so one of the things is that one of the problems, though, when you avoid a subject is that the enemy loves when subjects are avoided. Because what the enemy does is when something is not being avoided and some, when something is being avoided and it's in the darkness, the enemy loves the darkness. And that's where the enemy can most take advantage of people. And so that's why this has to be talked about. Because so often in churches, it's like, no, we can't go there. We can't address that. And here's what happens when you don't avoid, when you, when you don't address sex in the church context. There, there tends to be three views when it comes to sex. One of them is more of a, more of a, a liberal worldly view. The other one's more of a religious conservative view. And then the sorry, I have like a thing sticking under my shirt. I apologize. That bothers me. So, and then and the third one is the actual biblical view. Okay, so let me give you the three views. The first view that 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 comes when we that happens when it comes to sex is the view that sex is gross. Sex is gross. That, that's what religious people say. Religious people, traditional people. People who are more conservative on things will say, no, sex is gross. And, and yeah, maybe God created it, but that was something he did by accident. And, and, and we, oh, we, we only do it to procreate. You can't enjoy it. There's only certain positions, and that's it. Right? Those are, that's the first group. Right? Sex is gross. The second group are the people who think sex is God. That's more the worldly people. Those are the people who are the, 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 the more liberal, more worldly view. And here's what they say. They say that sex is God. So when they view sex, they, they think that sex is the, the, the epitome, is the apex of human relationship. So they treat sex like it's the place where you find ultimate self-fulfillment, ultimate self-disclosure, ultimate self-expression. That's how the world views sex. In, in the world, sex is God. In the church, with religious people, sex is gross. And in the world, sex is God. And what we're going to see this morning is that when it comes to the Bible, God brings a balance to this, that the scripture brings a balance to sex that you don't see anywhere else in the world. when you look at scripture, you see that sex is not gross and sex is not God, but sex is a gift. It's a gift. So in other words, it's not uh, not something gross that you avoid. It's not a God that you worship, but it's a gift that you steward. It's a gift that you steward. And so the reason why we have to address this subject is because most of the time, I can literally count on my hands, and the number is zero, how many times I've heard a sermon in a church that I've attended on sex. Okay. So the first reason we got to address it is because it's avoided. But the second reason why we got to talk about it is not just because it's avoided, but because people in this church in particular, in God's church in general, are being attacked in this area. They are being attacked and they are being swallowed up in this particular area of their lives. I can't tell you how many times I will sit with guys and they will take me out or they will call me and they'll take forever. Like they'll build up to it, whether it's at lunch or a phone. I I literally have lost count over how many guys will like, "Um, mm, uh, uh, I got to talk to you. uh, And I actually just finished the thought for them. Like I'm like, oh, you're, you're watching porn. Yeah. How'd you know? Because I met with three dudes just like you last week. And, and, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's what the enemy wants you to do. The enemy wants you to feel that the temptation that you're struggling with is very particular and you're the only person that's ever struggled with it. That's what the enemy wants. So, so the enemy, here's what the enemy wants. The enemy wants you to feel like your testimony is general and your temptation is particular. So, so let, me, let me explain it. What the enemy wants you to do is the enemy wants you to look at your testimony, and he wants you to think, oh, my testimony is just like everyone else's testimony. I'm just, you know, a run-of-the-mill, average testimony. That's what the enemy wants, too. He wants you to minimize your testimony and to maximize your temptation. He wants you to be like, you're the only person that struggles with this temptation. Your testimony is a dime a dozen, but your temptation is one in a million. That, that's, that's how Satan attacks people. But what we're going to see this morning is that it's actually the opposite. Your testimony is what's unique, and your temptation is what everybody else struggles with. So in other words, on the one hand, in God's eyes, we are exceptional. But on the other hand, we are not the exception, right? Because of our testimony, we're exceptional. But because of our temptation, we're not the exception. That's really important to know. Because one of the things that the enemy loves to do is to isolate you and make you feel like you're the only person. And so if you're someone here who's never had sex, then the enemy comes and, and tempts you with promiscuity and says, oh, you, you actually don't ever, you won't actually live until you have sex. You won't actually experience life until you've had sex. And then if you're someone who has had sex outside of marriage, then the enemy shows up and he, he makes you feel bad with purity. Like, oh, look at you. Of course you did that. So the ones who, he's been, who have been pure, he attacks with, with promiscuity. And the ones who have, have been promiscuous, he attacks with purity. He wants to make you miserable, and he wants to isolate you. And that's why we have to address the subject. We have to shine light because wherever, light's not, wherever there's not light, there's darkness. That's why we have to talk about this subject. And Here's the thing. When, when we look at this subject of, of, of sex, the reason why we have to talk about it at, at, with this generation is because if this generation doesn't address it, expose it, and heal it, and get healed from it, then they're going to pass all those things on to the next generation. Listen, listen, for you parents who are like, I don't want to talk to my kids about sex. It's awkward. I don't want to go there. Listen, your children are going to have a theology of sex. That theology is either going to be given to, you by, given to them by you or by the world. Your children already are forming a theology of sex. I remember I was like 10 or 11 the first time I saw pornography at, my, at one of my cousin's house. At that moment, my theology of sex was starting to be developed, and it only has been developed since. So so if you think, oh, I'm not going to touch the subject, they'll figure it out. It's so funny. Parents would never let their kids figure it out with food. Oh, I'm not going to feed them. They'll figure it out, (laughs) right? Or I'm not going to send them to school. They'll figure it out. No. But if you wouldn't do it with their food and you wouldn't do it with their education, then how dare you do it with their sexuality? That's the problem, and that's why this issue needs to be addressed, and that's why not only as parents, if you haven't had the, let's say you have a teenager or someone who's dating or someone who's engaged in your family as a child, a a child in one of those roles, not only do you have, not only should you be having a talk with them, I don't think that's even the right way. You should be having a conversation with them. You you can't talk about sexuality in a 15-minute awkward, no-eye-contact conversation, Right? You can't do it. It has to be a conversation. Not a a 15-minute one, but a 10-year conversation. And every time they enter a new season, there are new conversations that happen. And you have to be vulnerable with your children. If you struggle sexually, tell your children you struggle sexually. It's not fair for you to keep that to yourself and then say, oh, yeah, figure it out. I remember when I was in high school, I was struggling. I had had a lot of sexual experience before I met my wife. And then because of that, I had just become a Christian. I brought that into our relationship, and we struggled sexually too. And my mentor, I found out years later that he had struggled sexually when he was dating, but he never asked me about it. So I was alone dealing with this thing, and he was too scared to bring it up. That's what the enemy loves. And that's why we have to talk about this issue. Okay? So... Now that we know why we have to address it, here's what we're going to do. We're we're going to, uh, our passage this morning is coming from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. We're only looking at one verse this morning. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, we are given a theology of sex, a theology of sex. So I'm going to read it. And then after I read it, I'm going to give us the the outline. So here's what it says in Hebrews 13, verse 4. If you're with me, say amen. amen. It says, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. It's the word of the Lord. Now, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this passage, this verse, under three headings. We're going to look at the standard, then we are going to look at the struggle, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the solution. The standard, the struggle, the solution. So let's begin by looking at the standard. In verse 4, right at the beginning of verse 4, the author of Hebrews gives us a very clear standard. Look what he says. He says, marriage should be what? Honored by all. So he gives us a very, very clear, distinct standard. Marriage should be honored by all. Now, before I get into what all this means, this, this comment, this statement that he makes, this, this, this command, essentially, it's a command. It's a very controversial comment, command today. But you would think that, oh, well, back then it wasn't that controversial. But actually, it was just as controversial back then as it is today. And here's why. Because in those days, marriage was just as broken back then as it is today, but for totally different reasons. Actually, no, they're pretty similar reasons. So here's what would happen. In the Greco Roman world 2,000 years ago, when this passage was initially, initially written, here, here's how marriage was viewed women were viewed as property. And that's, that's, a, that's like probably the best they were viewed. Many times they were viewed even worse than that. But women were commodities. Women were property. That's all they were. And so here's what marriage would look like back then. Back then, there was no such thing as a single adult. If you were a single adult, either you were a eunuch or you were a prostitute. There was no such thing as an adult that was not married. You had to be married. And many times you were married very, uh, very early in your teen, in your teen years. Okay? Now here's what's so contradictory about this world, though. What they would do is, is they would have, the women would have to remain sexually pure up until marriage, and then once they were married, the woman had to remain faithful to their husband. It was required by law. But the man, on the other hand, because he wasn't the commodity, he wasn't the property, he was the owner, the man, on the other hand, could sleep with essentially whoever he wanted. He can sleep with any prostitute, and the wife couldn't say anything, and he can sleep with any slave that he owned in the house. The only people that men in those days could not sleep with was the wives of other men. That's it. But if that woman was a prostitute or their property, they can have sex with them. And the woman could not say anything, and the woman could not divorce them. Okay? So this was a very, very messed up culture when it came to marriage. So even though there was a bigger percentage of married people, because everyone needed to be married if you were an adult, even though there was a greater percentage of married people back then, the view of marriage was very, very low. And so when the author of Hebrews says marriage should be honored by all, not only is it controversial today, but it was even controversial back then. Because now all the men are like, wait, 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 so I can't cheat anymore? Wait, wait, I can't just do whatever I want? And here's what's funny about our culture, right? Our culture we're like all the men today with the Me Too movement, no, women, women aren't commodities, and we got to respect women, and women are, are awesome, and we got to, right? And amen, that's the truth. The problem is those same guys then turn around and watch pornography when they're by themselves. At least, they had the, at least they had the dignity to do it publicly. See, they treated women like property and commodities, but at least they, were, they had the integrity to be honest about it. Our culture, we put hashtag Me Too on everything, and then we watch porn every night. See, so that, that's what's happening here. You see that, that what he's bringing up here is very important, that, that marriage, not only should marriage be honored, But then he talks about being honored by all. Now, now before I jump into this, let me let me give you what the word honored means. The word honored in Greek, it means to treat something as valuable. It means to see something as highly esteemed. It means to see something of 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 high cost. It's something treat something like if it's high, very costly and very dear. Hey, that's what the word honored there means. It's not an emotion, it's a decision. Because we live in a culture that's all about emotions and how I feel and how it feels. No, it doesn't matter how you feel. It's it's not an emotion. It's a command. It's a decision. It's an act of the will, not an act of the heart. Okay? Honored by all. Now, here's the thing about our culture, and we talked about this last week. Our culture has a very weird view when it comes to marriage. And, And it has nothing to do with honoring it. Our culture does not honor marriage. There are two extremes when it comes to our culture, and for those of you who were here last week, this will be a little bit repetitive, but I think it's important to restate. We saw how marriage was viewed back then, but here's how marriage is viewed in our culture. On the one hand, our culture idolizes marriage and puts it in a place where it shouldn't be. And on the other hand, it ignores marriage and puts it in another place down there where it shouldn't be. So it puts it too high or it puts it too low. Here's how our culture puts marriage too high. One of the things that has been happening in the past 30 years in America with the LGBTQ community is that they desperately want marriage. And the reason why they want marriage is because they're convinced that marriage is going to bring them the contentment and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that they've been looking for. And so in other words, they're putting marriage in a place where marriage is not supposed to be. And all they got to do is be married for three minutes, and they'll find out that marriage can't do that. They'll get it, and they'll be like, wow, it's not what I thought it was. So on the one hand, our culture idolizes marriage. But then on the other hand, our culture ignores and devalues it. Because what we said last week is that almost every show you watch, almost every movie you watch, whenever there is a married couple portrayed, it's almost always portrayed the same way. The, 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 the marriage is going horribly. It is super boring. The sex is, is, is ho- like plain and, or, or non-existent. And then the husband is almost always portrayed as an idiot, a buffoon, and a, and a, and a guy that can't even put a sentence together. And then the wife is, is, is portrayed as superior, smart, and discontent with the man. Almost every, every show you'll see or movie you'll see is what Hollywood does, right? And the only people that they celebrate, the only people that they make heroes are the people who are having sex outside of marriage, are the people who are single and are sleeping around. Those are the people you want to be like. So our culture, at the very same time, idolizes marriage and puts it in a place where it shouldn't be. And, at, and, and simultaneously, they, they ignore it and put it in another place where it shouldn't be. So it's either too high or too low, the view of marriage. And what we need to see is that we, listen... Our culture, marriage went from it went back, at least, at least the, the point of Scripture is that Mary, marriage should be a conclusion for many people. It shouldn't be just something you do as an option, but for many people, God calls them to marriage. But because of our culture and the way that marriage has been portrayed, marriage is an optional lifestyle now that you can do or not do. I heard that in Europe now, they have term marriages. So you sign a term with the person you marry, three years, five years, seven years, and then you can renew the term if you still want to be in it at the end of the term. That's not a covenant, that's a contract, okay? Look at this quote from Al Mohler. Look how Al Moeller puts it. He says, once human beings were able to have sex without children and children without sex, marriage simply became a lifestyle option. Add to this the change in the Western understanding of marriage from covenant to contract and you have a sure recipe for social disaster and the subversion of marriage. That's where we are. Now that you can have have sex without children and children without sex, marriage is just a lifestyle choice. It's like a buffet and you may put it on your plate. You might not. That's what marriage has become in the culture we're in. Now, if you go back to the verse, here's what's interesting. It says that marriage should be honored by all. So by, by, by all. And you know what all means in Greek, right? It means all. <laughs> so, so here's what this means. It means that you should be, how do I put this? You should be honoring marriage whether you are married or not. This is a command to married and single people. So the question is, what does it look like for a married person to honor marriage, and what does it look like for a single person to honor marriage? That's a, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you, okay? Here's how a married person, in light of this passage, is called to honor marriage. If you are married, you honor marriage in a few ways. The first way you honor marriage is by honoring it, which is the word there. In other words, the, remember what the word honor there means? It means to value it. It means to, have a, it means to be highly esteemed. It means to have it and treat it as precious. So, so the first way that you honor marriage if you're married is by treating it as the second most important relationship you're in. Because the first most important relationship is your one with God. And what we said last week is that God completes you, your spouse compliments you, right? A lot of times we get that flipped, but it's not. God is the only one that can completes us, and that's why some people can be called to singleness and be totally content, right? But we can be complimented by our spouse. And one of the ways you honor is by valuing, by uh, uh, having a high esteem, and by treating your marriage as precious. Another way that you honor your marriage if you're married is by having your spouse, listen to this, be your standard of beauty. I'm going to go ahead and say that again, okay? The way you honor your spouse when you are married is by having them be your standard of beauty. So here's what I mean. Your, if your spouse is 26 then your standard of beauty is a 26-year-old. If your spouse in 20 years has gained weight and has wrinkles, then you like chubby gray-haired people (laughs) with wrinkles. Your spouse, listen, is always your standard of beauty. From when you married her or when you married him until the day one of you goes. That is your standard of beauty. And not just your standard of beauty, it's your standard of person. personality. It's your standard for emotional, uh, uh, re- uh, emotionally. Your spouse is your standard. That's how you honor your spouse. See, but the problem is, and we'll get into this in a little bit, when you are constantly looking at other women or other men, or you're constantly watching porn, then you no longer have your spouse as a standard. You actually have taken that standard away, and you have a new standard. And now you're trying to have them live up to that standard. You're no longer honoring marriage when you do that. Here's another way that you honor marriage when you're married. One of the things that married people do, which really bothers me, is they complain about marriage. Complain about it all the time. Oh, marriage! Oh, that's that. that she's my she's my ball and chain. Oh, don't get me started. I used to I didn't have gray hair. Now I do because she stresses me out. Here's the thing, a lot of times what married people do, sometimes they don't even mean it, but they do it because they want to make single people feel better. So they're around single people and they know that person doesn't have a prospect, so they're like, oh, don't marriage is horrible. Don't even do it, don't trust me. You enjoy your singleness because marriage is terrible. But here's the thing whether you're telling the truth or not, you're sinning if you if you do that. Because you're not honoring marriage when you do that. You're not honoring it. You might be making them feel better. But you're actually sinning against God because it says that marriage is to be honored. And here's the other thing about about, about being married and and honoring uh, your spouse when you're married. One of the things that bothers me is when, when when I meet with a couple or I meet with an individual and they talk to me about their marital problems. And I have so many marital problems. You don't understand my spouse this and my spouse that and all these marital problems. Listen, listen, listen. You don't have any marital problems. You have personal problems. You don't have any marital problems. You have personal problems. You brought those problems with you when you got married. Those came in your suitcase. So stop blaming marriage for your sin. Stop blaming your spouse for your issues. You don't have marital problems. You have personal problems that you happen to bring with you. Okay? So that's how you honor marriage when you're married. Now, how do you honor marriage if you're single? What, like, how can you possibly honor a marriage if you're not in one? And I think the, the, the way you do it is, one, some of you will one day be married. So you will actually honor your future spouse by how you carry yourself right now. Right? So a lot of people are like, oh, man, I, I can't wait to find the one. Man, we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about singleness. But if you're not becoming the one that the one you're looking for is looking for, don't be surprised when that one walks right by you. Okay, so, so singleness is, so honoring marriage is you actually honoring the future spouse you haven't met yet by being pure and by handling yourself in a way that when you meet that person, you'll be ready to meet them, right? But here's the other thing. Another way that a single person can uh, uh, honor marriage, the, the word there, adultery, it says God will judge the adulterer. It's very interesting. The word there, adultery, it means to seduce or to be seduced. That's what the word there means. So in other words, when it comes to lust, there are two types of lust. There's the people who lust after someone else, and then there's the people who are lusted after. Listen, both are equally as sinful. So maybe you're sitting here and you're like, oh, I don't lust after anybody, but I love to be lusted after. And you know who you are. The way you dress, the way you talk, the way you flirt, the way you touch. Yeah, I don't lust after anybody, but but I want people, I, I love to be loved, I want to be wanted, I need to be needed, I lust after being lusted after. When you do that, and the person you're doing it with is a single person who's not going to be your spouse, or it's someone who's already married, you're actually not honoring marriage. Here's the other thing. When, 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 when I heard someone describe sexual morality, sex, not sexual morality, but just sexuality like this. Sexuality is like a fire. And, and the way you deal with a fire if you're in the woods is you put, you put a bunch of stones in a circle and then you, you, put, you build the fire inside the stones. That fire, when done, put correctly in its right context, will keep you warm and will do its job. If you were to take that same fire and move a few feet into the woods and start the same fire... That same fire that was perfect when it was in the where it was supposed to be now will burn down an entire forest. Same thing with I have uh, at my house this morning. I, I get I'm, I'm warm blooded, so I get cold easy. So I had my fireplace on, and it, that fireplace warms me up, it's it, why because it's in the right place. But if my that, if that fire wasn't in the fireplace, if it was in my laundry room or in my bedroom, my house burns out. See, the problem with sex is that it's so powerful, God created it that way. That when you don't put it in the right context, it will burn your life down. It will burn it down. Okay? So, that's just my first point. (laughs) So, the first thing we see in this passage is we see the standard of uh, sexuality, the standard of sex in marriage. The second thing that we see in this passage is we see the struggle, the struggle of sexuality. Now, To get a better idea of the struggle, look what it says in the second half of the verse. It says, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So what we see here in the second half of the verse is we get a description from the author of Hebrews of the struggle that is bound to happen when you try to honor God with your body. Every single person in here, listen, even if you've never had sex before, even if you've never kissed anybody before, every single person in here struggles with this issue. I'm going to give you, I'm going to break down each word and then, and then we'll jump into it. The phrase there where it says the marriage bed kept pure, the, the phrase there marriage bed, the reason why it's in the English it's marriage bed is because it's, it's, it's trying to explain the word marriage. But actually in the Greek, the phrase marriage bed is your sex life. That's all it means. So essentially what it says in the Greek is and the sex life kept pure. Your sexual activity, your sex life is what it means by marriage bed. And then it says, God will judge, which means he will punish. And it says, the adulterer. And remember what we said the adulterer was? The adulterer is someone who is seduced or seducing. Then he says, all the sexually immoral. Now, sexually immoral, that that word in Greek is actually one word, even though it's two words here. The word in Greek is pornea, which is where we get pornography from. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting about the word sexual immorality in in the Bible. Sexual immorality is kind of like the junk drawer for everything else. So whenever you're in a relationship with someone and you're like, oh, the Bible doesn't talk about oral sex, sexual morality. The Bible doesn't talk about first base, third base. That's the drawer where everything goes. And here's the thing. Some of you are like, well, how do I know how far is too far? How do I know if I'm sinning against God? What, 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 how can I possibly know it, it, what, the, what the lines are? Well, here's what, what, a, what a friend of mine did once. I had a, a friend of mine who was a pastor. And one day, he had this, this, this kid in his youth group come up to him, and the kid in the youth group was like, I don't think it's sinful to masturbate. And he's like, I don't care what you say. I don't think it's sinful. And he's like, oh, okay. He's like, well, how do you, well, how do you mean? Like, he's like, well, I don't think about anything when I'm doing it. He's like, well, I highly doubt that. And he's like, yeah, no, I don't. I don't. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to give you a challenge. This is interesting. He says, I want you to go home tonight, and I want you to masturbate. And the kid's like, well, well you can't say that. So already you're seeing there's some guilt involved. Then he says, I want you to do it and think about Jesus when you're doing it. And he's like, bro, that's gross, man. I can't do that. I can't think about Jesus when I'm masturbating. He's like, that probably means you shouldn't do it then. That's the perfect line. See, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be legalistic up here, guys. Whatever relationship you're in, if you and your girl or, or you and your boy are ever trying to decide what the line is, if you can't thank Jesus for what you're doing when you're doing it, You should stop doing it. That's the line. Okay? And the same goes with pornography and the same goes with every other sin. If you can't thank God for it, then let your conscience tell you what's right and what's not right. Okay? So you, what you have here is you have God shows up and he gives us, the, the, the he, he describes to us through the author of Hebrews, the struggle that all of us have. And some of you are thinking, well, I'm single, I can't be an adulterer, I'm single. Well, here's the thing, Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount says that if you even have a thought of someone who's not your wife, sexually, you've already committed adultery. So you are an adulterer, congratulations. Every single person in here falls under this problem. Every single person in here wrestles with this struggle. All of us. Okay? And the reason why I want to make that clear is because later on when we get to the the solution, it'll mean more when we all understand we have the problem. Okay? So he's talking to us about the struggle. Now, what I want you to see here is, and it's kind of implied here, but last week when we looked at Genesis, it wasn't implied. It was clear. The person who created sex was God. Now, think about that. Think about that. There was a time in human history, there was a time in history where sex did not exist. And the person who thought about it, the person who created it, was God. And listen, when Adam and Eve started being intimate, God wasn't like, oh, my gosh, what are you doing? I didn't create you for that. Get away from her. (laughs) He didn't do it because he created it. It was his idea. He made it. And so that's why when you look at sex as gross, what you're actually doing is you're spitting on God's plan and what he created. You have no right to call it gross because he made it a gift. God came up with sex, not you, not me, not Howard Stern. God did. It's his idea. And since it's his idea, guess what? He's the one that sets the parameters for it. Okay? Now, now let, me, let, me, let me illustrate it to you like this. When you go to Walmart or Ikea or any sort like that and you buy a piece of furniture, right, you bring that piece of furniture home and almost always there's a manual that comes with it. Now, if you start having issues with the product, what you do is you look at the manual and there's a number, right? But here's what's interesting about the number. The number is never for the realtor, the, realtor who just, uh, the, the retailer who just bought it for you. It's not for the retailer who just bought it for you. The number is a number to who? The manufacturer. If there's an issue with the product, you don't call the the, the person who just sold it to you, the retailer. You call the manufacturer. Here's what a lot of us do with sex. We take sex. We take it out of its context because it's supposed to be, the fire is supposed to be within these parameters. We take it out of its context. We take it over here where it's not supposed to be. We use it, and it doesn't work because that's not what it was meant to do. And then what we do is instead of calling the manufacturer, we go back to the return line. We go back to the return line, to the realtor, and give it back and give me another one. We do it again and again. It didn't work having sex with this guy, so I'm going to have sex with another guy. Instead of calling the manufacturer, the one who created it, the one who has a plan for it, you go back to the return line and keep giving it back again and again and again and again. That's why this is a struggle. That's why this struggle, not only is it dangerous, but it can destroy not only individuals, but marriages. Here's what's crazy about, here's what's crazy about this, this issue. What we tend to do is we tend to treat our bodies, and this is what our culture says. Our culture tells you there is such a thing as safe sex. And what is safe sex in the culture? Safe sex is that you don't get an STD and you don't get someone pregnant. But actually, that, that, that phrase is an oxymoron. It's, it's actually a paradox. You can't have safe sex, even if someone doesn't get an STD, even if someone doesn't get pregnant, because sex always has consequences. Your culture The culture doesn't want you to think it does, but sex always has consequences. Here's how it messed up our culture is. On the one hand, they'll tell you, hey, sec- you can have sex with no strings attached, that's one value they have. And then shows like The Bachelor are famous because they, everyone's desperately looking for their one true love and live happily ever after. When sex is removed from the context of marriage, there is no happily ever after. And so the culture is telling two narratives at the same time, and they don't connect. They're actually going in totally different directions. But they want both things at the same time. I want to have sex with anybody, however I want, and you can't judge me, but I also want to find the person that's going to love me and accept me for who I am. It, it doesn't work that way. Here's how messed up our culture is. Our culture, with all the stuff with the Me Too movement, and and, and I think the Me Too movement is great, rightly so. Sexual harassment of women is wrong, and I think it's right, right? But here's what's funny about our culture. Our culture is all about Me Too and, and, and protecting women, and women are not commodities. They're not property. They are people. We need to respect them. And then when Hugh Hefner dies, we do a sad tribute for his life. a man who made his living off making women commodities and properties. So you'll put hashtag me too one day and then R.I.P. Hugh the next day. That's how inconsistent our culture is. That's how bad the issue is. So so it's funny because the, the, the world says sex is how you will be liberated, and actually when you get to the end of that road, you have everything but liberation. You have slavery, you have regret, you have shame. That's how dangerous and, and important this conversation is. We have to discuss this. Because if, you, if, if the Bible doesn't give you a theology of sex, you will go find one yourself. That's why this is so important. Now, I have my notes up here because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. So let me, let me check to see where I'm at. Here's, here's another thing. I want to talk to you about compatibility for a second. Did you know that you are much more likely to be compatible with someone sexually than you are with them relationally? So let me put this. If you look at the amount of people that you are compatible with sexually, that number is much bigger than the people you are compatible with relationally. Okay? So the problem with our culture is though Sex happens so quickly in the relationship that once sex gets involved, you no longer can have an objective view of the relationship. Because sex is too strong. And so excuse your view of the relationship and you actually think things that are not correct about the person. And so the people around you are like, this is not the person for you. Don't be with them. Run away. Everyone who loves you is telling you. But you can't see it because if sex is involved and sex is so powerful, you be, the Bible says that, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says to flee from sexual immorality. And think about it. There's a place in Scripture where he says stand firm against the enemy, but when it comes to sex, he says to run. That's how dangerous sex is. Stand firm against Satan, but get out of there if it's sexual temptation. Okay. But in that passage, he says when you have sex with a prostitute, You become one flesh with her. Now, some of you are like, wait, that's weird. I always thought that one flesh happened when you got married. No, one flesh happens when you have sex, okay? You actually become one flesh with that person. That's how God made sex. So think about it. When you have sex with someone and you only want their body sexually, You actually lack integrity because what you're saying to the person is, I want you physically, but I don't want you legally. I don't want you emotionally. I don't want you relationally. I just want your body. It's like we said last week with the C.S. Lewis quote. He said that you know it's romantic love or not by how you treat the person after you have sex with them. If after you have sex with them, within five minutes you're walking away, then what that means is they're not a person, they're a pack of cigarettes because that's what you do with a pack of cigarettes when you're done. You smoke it and you throw it away. See, the danger is when you remove sex, I heard someone put it like this. Sex is a sacrament or, or, or an ordinance of a covenant relationship. And what does that mean? Think about what we do when we when we when we have the sacraments, right? I, I have the table here and I say here the here here are the ordinances, here are the sacraments. A sacrament, what a sacrament does is it symbolically points to something bigger than itself. It's almost like a covenant renewal. Sex is meant to be a a sacrament of marriage. So when we have, if if you're married to someone and you have sex with them, it's like a renewal of the commitment. It's a physical representation of what you did the day you got married. You're renewing that commitment to them. So when you separate that from the context of marriage, then you no longer actually have the biblical view of sex. Because you're separating it from the rest. Now, I want you to see this quote from from C.S. Lewis. And you guys know how much I read and love C.S. Lewis. But this might be be my favorite quote he's ever had. Listen to this. He says, The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, which are intended to go along with it and make up the total union. Listen to this. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure, right? We said there's nothing wrong with sexual pleasure, any more than about the pleasure of eating. This is what it is. He compares what it is to have sex outside of marriage. He says, it means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. So when you have sex outside of marriage, is you putting something in your mouth, chewing it, and when the flavor is gone, you spit it back out. You're ripping it out of its context. And, and, and because the Bible says that, flesh, that, that sex brings one fleshness, that you become one flesh with someone, I heard someone put it this way. Sex is a, an adhesive. It's like glue. It's like tape. When you have sex with someone, whether that person is your spouse or not, you actually glue yourself to them again and again and again and again. Now think about what happens if I had an adhesive, if I had tape over here. If I had tape and I taped it on that wall, for example, and the next week I would put it on that wall, and the next week I would put it on that wall, after a while the adhesiveness goes away. The more you have sex with people who are not your spouse, the adhesiveness, your ability to connect, your ability to have intimacy, your ability to trust, your ability to be vulnerable goes away. You literally you lose the stickiness. Listen, the thing that most fuels romance is exclusivity. Right? The thing that most fuels the romance is exclusivity. When you're not exclusive with someone, you actually kill romance at its root. This is why I am convinced that if you're thinking about dating someone or you're thinking about marrying someone or if you're already married to someone and you haven't told them about their sexual past, your sexual past, you should tell them about your sexual past. Like today. Here's why. Because you would expect that person to tell you if they had debt. You would expect that person to tell you if they had any relational struggles, if they had any family abuse, right? But then, oh, my sexual sin. No, that's my past. You don't know. No, that's mine. You don't know. You don't have the right. You don't have the right because you're bringing that with you, and it's going to affect your relationship. See, sexual past is different than any other past. You can leave a job. You can leave a, 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 a relationship. You can leave a location. But you can never leave your sexual sin. It says in 1 Corinthians 6 that it's the sin that is against, the, it's the only sin that's against the body. Sexual sin is always there at the tip of your memory. Like You'll be watching something, and then something you did 30 years ago pops up. And there's your sexual sin again. And there's the guilt again. And there's the shame again. That's how sexual sin works. And so you're bringing that into the relationship. And so here's what I think you should do, honestly. If you're thinking about dating someone and you're watching pornography, I think you should sit down with the person and say, hey, listen, before we date, I want you to know a few things. One, I need you to know that you are one of a million. She's like, oh, no, no, sorry. You, she's like, no, 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 sorry, honey. You mean I'm one in a million. No, 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 no. no. I, I meant you are one of a million. Because as I'm making my decision on you sexually, I can have sex with anybody. So you're actually one of them. You're not one in a million. You're one of a million, right? And then you tell her, oh, and by the way, since I'm addicted to pornography, uh, you're never going to satisfy my needs. I'm always going to be comparing you to other people, and I'm going to crush you under my expectations. Can we go on a date? Tell them. Tell them. If you're going to do it, tell them. Because it's going to destroy that relationship. And she might as well know ahead of time. Oh, and women, by the way, when my wife and I were in Moody, when we were at college, I remember there was this chapel for guys who were struggling with pornography. And then there was another chapel in the other room, and and it was for women. I'm like, why would they have one for women? The room was almost as packed for women as it was for men. And so if you're a woman here, you could be just as guilty of this. It's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. So maybe as a woman, you won't watch pornography, but you emotionally watch shows like The Bachelor, and you try to find in that person what you'd be finding in your spouse. You can emotionally cheat just as much as you can physically cheat. So here, so, 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 let me make sure I'm good here. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, so last thing. So here's what happens when sex comes into the picture sex skews everything so like i said no one's thinking clearly anymore but here's what's funny here's how women try to fix it women try to fix it when when sex starts becoming too much of an issue they try to fix it by bringing the r word the relationship word or the l word the love word and guys freak out they're out what a guy does when sex starts to skew things is they're like you know how we can fix this by having more sex for guys, sex is like a wrench. Just keep twerking just keep, just keep that thing. Just keep, doesn't work, Let's sex it out. That's the issue. And the last thing I'll say before we go to the, my final point is this. I want to talk to you about pornography for a second. I read this week, um, there was this, uh, this article on Time Magazine, and it's funny that the world is finally starting to admit that pornography is dangerous and destructive. Even the world is. It was, it was a, cover, a cover story in Time Magazine not too long ago about how pornography will destroy individuals and relationships. But then I read in this other thing. There's a book written by two guys. It was, I think it was a, a Harvard Press book. And in the book, they talk about how the three effects that pornography has on a marriage. One of the things that they brought up this was really interesting, they said pornography is so prevalent now that it affects everyone, not just the person you're with. So in other words, in this room right now, There's at least half of the people, maybe even more, struggling with pornography. So the reason why pornography affects everyone, even if you're not married to someone who watches porn, is because someone has has subjected you to their lust because of their struggle. So they say now everyone is affected by pornography, even if you're not married to someone who watches pornography. But that's neither here nor there. What they also said is that there's three things that for sure, not maybe, but for sure will happen if someone watches pornography in a marriage. The first thing they said is that the, the spouse who watches pornography is going to crush the other spouse under the weight of their expectations because they're going to expect him or her to look like the person in the video. The other thing they said is that people who watch pornography are less likely to be in relationships because if you can have the sex without the commitment and the hard work and the pursuing, why would I get married? So they become less likely to be married and in relationship. And the third thing, and this is actually interesting, that the third thing that will happen is not only that, but they actually start f- forcing their spouse into certain actions and behavior because they want their spouse to be like what they see on the screen. Listen, and I, I need you to dial in for this. If your spouse is watching pornography, not only will they, not only is it that they might cheat on you one day, they are already cheating on you. Did, did you get that? Did you hear me on that? It, 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 not only is it prepping them to cheat on you physically one day, but they are already actually cheating on you. Because when a man is taking another um, image of another woman, and that woman is leading them towards orgasm, and that woman is not you, they're already prepping themselves to cheat on you. They're, they're actually practicing to cheat. At, almost every time you see adultery in a marriage, pornography came before it. So they're not might cheat on you, they are cheating on you. That's how dangerous this is. And for those of you who are sitting here today and you're like, "You know what? Forget this church, man. I like this church. I thought you were good, but you're just like every other legalistic, traditional, primitive religious person. Of course you're telling me sex is bad. Listen, here's the thing. You can disagree with me all you want. Honestly. You can leave and not listen to a word I said. But what I said, but here's the thing about sex. Sex, God created sex the same way he created food. Listen, you can believe whatever you want about food. You can believe that carbs make you skinny. And you could you could believe it with all your heart. But if you stuff your face with carbs, you're going to get fat. (laughs) Listen, it doesn't matter what you believe about food. You can be an atheist. You can be a Muslim. You can be a Jew. Carbs make you fat. That's exactly how sex is. Your view can be whatever you want about sex. You could agree with me fully. You can disagree with me fully. Because God is the one who created sex. If you go away from his plan and the consequences happen and your life burns down and the forest burns down, that's going to happen. It's not even like, oh, maybe. It will burn down. It's the same way. It's the same exact way. So that's my second point. Now let's conclude. We've looked at the, 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 the standard. We've looked at the struggle. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at the solution. W- what is the solution to this problem? This is clearly a problem, Amen. And listen, whenever you bring up the subject of sex, almost always there's two groups that form. There's the people who have struggled with sex and so or sexual temptation and sexual sin and the guilt starts coming in. And there's the people who haven't struggled with it, and you feel pride and better, you feel prideful and better than all the people who haven't done it. So the people who haven't done anything yet, you're like, man, you tell them, Pastor Will. Purity is the way to go. I got my purity ring on. But here's the thing, guys. If you go back to the passage. There's two words that are used here. It, it says that, uh, uh, it, one, it says to be pure, right, to be kept pure. And then it uses the word adultery. You know what's interesting about those two Greek words? That there are other places in the New Testament where they are used to describe the word unpure, not pure, but the word impure in the word adultery. They are used to describe our condition inwardly. In, in Titus, it says that you can be impure from the inside. And then in, in, uh, in James 4, uh, verse 4, it says that we are adulterous if we cheat against God. So here's what it means. Whether you've had sex or not, whether this is a struggle or not, every single person in here falls under this category. Because if you haven't done it physically, you've done it spiritually. Okay? So I just want to throw the net out to make sure everyone's on the same page with me, okay? So now that we all realize we suck, let's all get back into the, to, 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 let's all focus here, okay? So, 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 here, so here's what, what's happening. The crazy thing is that in order for us to find a solution, it's going to have to be someone else. Because if we're part of the problem, we can't be part of the solution. And the solution is actually found in the word pure. Because the marriage bed be kept pure. In the book of Hebrews, there's only one other place in the entire book of Hebrews where that word pure is used. And it's used about a person. And listen, and that person isn't you and it isn't me. In Hebrews chapter 7, the word pure there is used, and it's used to describe a high priest who is going to come and sacrifice himself on our behalf. And that high priest, like I said, is not me and it's not you. So the question is who is this high priest? Well, to answer that question, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 6. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, Flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Listen to this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? Then he says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So, so Paul actually starts pointing us who that who the, the high priest is. That there's a price being paid by someone and we can't pay it because we're the ones in debt. Okay? But here's what's funny about this. Paul is telling us to flee from sexual immorality. And he can go, he can go two routes with this. He can go the, the parent route or he can go the sex, sex ed teacher route. The, the parent route is, is when they say, you know what, don't do it because I said so. Right? He could have dealt with sexual immorality that way. Don't do it because I said so. The other route is the, sexual, the sex ed teacher route, which is don't do it because you'll get chlamydia. Right? So So, so the first route... Is don't do it because I said so. So it's all about grit and you doing it in your own strength. And the other one is don't do it because you might get an STD. So it's all about uh, 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 guilt and fear. He doesn't use grit. He doesn't use fear. He uses grace. He says the way you overcome sexual immorality is by understanding that your body is not your own and that someone bought you at a price. You have been redeemed. You have been bought back. He uses grace. But we still haven't found out who the person is. I'm going to tell you now. Go to John 8. In John chapter 8, you find this very interesting story about Jesus. And here's what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is is at the temple. At least that's what it seems like he is in the story. He's at the temple. And all of a sudden, these religious leaders bring this woman who's most likely naked, who's just been caught in the act of adultery. And they bring Jesus, the woman, and they say, hey, women, Jesus, what are we going to do with this woman? Because the law says that we should kill her because she has been caught in sexual sin right in the middle of it. So, so what are we going to do? Because you should kill her according to what Leviticus says. And so Jesus is kind of stuck in the thing. What's he going to do? Is he going to respond like the religious people do, which is to bring the full wrath of God on her because that's what she deserves? Or is he going to respond like the worldly people who say, oh, well, sex isn't that bad. Let her go because she didn't do anything wrong. He has, a, he has an opportunity here. Is he going to respond like the religious people who want to kill her or the liberal people who want to let her go? He does neither. Look what Jesus does. He says, woman, where are they? Talking about the men. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus does two things at the same time. At the one hand, on the one hand, he doesn't minimize her sin. He calls her out for what she did. He says, don't do it again. But then at the same time, he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, don't miss the order, though. Don't miss the order. You would think if I was writing this verse, here's how I would write it. I would write it. I would say, go leave your life of sin. And if you do, neither will I condemn you, right? If you obey, then I'll bless you. If you obey, then I'll accept you. If you do right, then I'll accept. I'll forgive you. But that's not what Jesus says. Don't miss the order. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. In other words, I have already loved you. I have already accepted you. I have already approved of you. and I'm already going to die for you. Now go and sin no more. It's a totally different motivation. He's not saying, hey, go be good and I'll forgive you. He says, no, I've forgiven you, now go be good. I've already given you everything you needed. I am the spouse that you've been looking for. See, you see the woman deserves to die. The woman deserves to be beaten. The woman deserves to be killed. But Jesus doesn't do it to her because he's going to do it to himself. He's going to die. He's going to be naked. He's going to be beaten. So he can give grace to her because he's going to receive the guilt. That's so important. It's such a beautiful way to deal with sexual sin. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It's beautiful. It's the gospel. You know, I heard a story a few years ago, and I'll finish with this. And in this story, a story told by Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Texas, and he says that he was at this conference, this really legalistic Southern Baptist conference, and it was all about sexual purity. He said this old guy got up and he was preaching on sexual purity and he was making everybody feel horrible. And one of the things he did at the beginning of the, of the thing is he had a rose and he, 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 he gave the rose to the first person in the row and there was about 400 to 600 kids in the room. He's like, I want you to look at the rose, examine it, and then pass it on to the next person. Everyone's gonna pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. After the end of the, at the end of the sermon, this dude thinks he, he builds up to this crescendo and he says, where's the rose? Can someone please show me the rose? And someone all the way in the back picks up the rose and they see it. And the rose is tattered. It is beat up because it's been handed from youth to youth to youth to youth. And he starts saying his point, the the apex of this man's message, which was so legalistic, he says, you see that rose? That's why you can't sin sexually. Because when you sin sexually, you become just like that rose. You become dirty and beaten and downtrodden and nobody wants you. And then look how filthy it is and look how dirty it is and look how broken it is. And you know what most gets me mad about that story? Jesus loves the rose. Jesus died for the rose. Jesus came for the rose. Jesus came for roses. That's why he came. So if a legalistic person stands up and says, you're not good enough, yeah, that's why I needed Jesus. Hey, you, you're unforgivable. That's why he forgave me. Jesus died for roses. He loves the rose. He gave himself for the rose. He forgave the rose. Jesus loves The rose. That's the gospel. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done or what's been done to you. You could be the most beaten, battered, ugly, tattered rose that's ever existed. Jesus came for you. That's the gospel. So listen, even though the standard is way higher than we ever expected. And even though the struggle is way harder than we ever could have imagined, praise be to God that the solution is way more glorious than we could ever have hoped. Let's pray.